in content marketing, your job, your primary function as a content marketer is to drive traffic and to drive lead gen. And then lead gen should be able to be tracked all the way back to either direct revenue or content assisted revenue as, as much as possible. Hey there, you just listened to the latest guest on the People of Digital Marketing podcast, Tracy Wallace, who is the director of content strategy at Clavio. Not Clavio or Clavio, Clavio. Prior to that, she was the head of marketing for two early stage startups and the editor in chief over at Big Commerce. She has 13 years of experience in content marketing and began her career in journalism. She also is a content creator for Workweek, and I subscribe to her weekly newsletter around content marketing and writing called Contentment. On this episode, we talk about content marketing and why content marketing is an investment, not a cost center for brands. We also talk about a lot of the stuff that I wish I knew when I started my career. And we talk about content marketing in this episode, but we also talk about internal marketing, attribution, and a whole lot more. And without rambling too much, I'm just gonna jump right in and let's listen to my interview with Tracy Wallace. Hi, Tracy, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing good. We were just talking about, prior to hitting record, the struggle that's happening in Austin right now. Yeah. Yeah, people will listen to this um, in the future, but it's unfortunate that we still have these in infrastructure issues in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Power's been out for um, over a week now for a lot of people because of some ice. Like, it got to be 31 degrees, and um, the whole city shut down. A bunch of trees fell on a bunch of lines, and it's taken a really long time to fix, um, which is really upsetting. So, yeah, I mean, we, we were talking, too, about how, you know, we had to move this. We were supposed to record last week, but I didn't have power for four days, so trying to kind of figure out what to do but anyways it's back for me at least not for all of austin um so it's where we're at now yeah, we work with what we what we have available i have done a, a lot of research on you and there's many places that we can go but the first place that i want to go is just setting the scene getting a sense of who you are as a professional so my first question for you is how did you even get into digital marketing? Oh, gosh. Into digital marketing. Um, I started my career, actually, the very first job. So I graduated into the Great Recession. Um, I graduated in 2010 and applied, God, for probably like a thousand jobs. And nobody was hiring then for anybody who remembers what the job market was like at the time. And ended up getting a job um, at a company called Demand Media, which was, at the time, it was a company started by the founder of MySpace, oddly enough. Uh, but it, it was a content farm. Uh, and content farms weren't uncommon back then. So Demand Media owned, you know, Livestrong Media uh, or like Livestrong.com, eHow, a variety of those kinds of publications. And essentially what they did was um, they would buy Google qu queries or they would buy queries from Google and then have people write content based on those queries. Now, at the time, that worked really well based on how Google's like the maturity of Google's algorithm. That does not work well now. There was a Panda update, <laughs> a Panda algorithm update that happened. Um, gosh, was it 2010? It might have even been 2011 that that demolished content farms and demand media was certainly part of that. But that's where I got my very first job. They paid me $30,000 a year. I had um, like $15,000 in student loans that I needed to pay back. It was not a lot <laughs> at the time. Um, but honestly, I had always just wanted to, I was always into writing. Um, when I was nine years old, I started editing like issues of Vogue. I would force my poor East Texas mother to buy me these big old fashion magazines, and then I would just spend my time editing them. Uh, so I always knew I wanted to go into writing in in some form or fashion. I was part of, you know, I, I helped run the news the newspaper at my college, um, and won several awards there. Anyway, so I was just happy to like have a job in content in general, whatever it was. I kind of didn't care. Ended up leaving that company after about nine months um, to join an organization called NaturallyCurly.com. 
Now, they were a true publication. Uh, Naturally Curly has since been acquired by Essence Magazine. But at the time, they were the largest publication for education on curly hair, how to take care of curly hair. Uh, They were the first organization to come up with all the different types of hair. So you type one is straight hair. Um, Once you get into type two and above, there's like ABC, depending on curl pattern. We don't got to go into it. They like taught L'Oreal all about it. I mean, it was it was a really big deal. They were the first um, organization to put curls on the runway. Um, Curly hair wasn't allowed on on runways at the time. Um, A really cool organization. And I I was there for a few years uh, as their managing editor. And it was really my first foray into, you know, being paid to actually like write content, run an editorial calendar. Now, what was interesting about Naturally Curly was that while they were a publication, maybe similar to like L.com and and those kinds of things, they also had a a like selling arm, a, a commerce arm. So essentially what they did was because they had built this large audience of women with curly hair, Back then in 2010, 2011, women with curly hair were still, for the most part, making their own products because there were no real products on market for them. Uh, and so Naturally Curly would buy those products in bulk and and like and sell them out to, to their audience. So beyond getting advertising revenue, we were also very encouraged to try to tie content back to e-commerce sales um, or at the time what was content and well, not at the time. Now that's called content and commerce. It's what Glossier does really well, right? A, a lot of brands do it these days. Uh, and Naturally Curly was, was at least to my knowledge, probably one of the first to, to really put those two things together. So those two things were really my, my early entry into digital marketing. The first from an SEO standpoint, working directly with Google queries and, you know, learning how to manipulate an algorithm. And then the second, of course, over at um, more of a publication, but really learning how to use content to drive both ad revenue as well as to um, tie everything back to um, e-commerce sales and doing that in a way, of course, that, you know, grew organic sessions and built a community. So that's where it started. I ended up later working at, you know, L.com for a little bit, Mashable uh, for a little bit. And then got out of journalism entirely, mostly because journalism pays terribly. Uh, and I I had applied for a content marketing job. It sounded very similar to the content work that I had been doing, but they were paying like three times more <laughs> than, than my journalism job was paying. Uh, I ended up getting the job. Um, and I was only there at that company then for probably about nine months or so. And I ended up leaving mostly because I got super bored at that job. Like my only expectation there was to, you know, write, you know, publish one article a day. And I was coming from the journalism world where you write more than one article a day often. And so I was done with my work by about noon every day and just got bored and then ended up getting a job over at uh, Big Commerce on their content marketing team. I thought that it would be really helpful for me if I liked this content marketing world that paid more to maybe join a team where I wasn't the only content marketer so I could learn how to do it, right? Like I I came from a journalism world. I hadn't been trained in it. Um, So I joined BigCommerce as a team of four or five. uh, And then everyone got laid off uh, within about four days of me being there. uh, And suddenly I was, again, the only content marketer uh, responsible for the company's blog, um, and was was convinced by by a variety of different folks at BigCommerce to stay. Technically, I actually quit BigCommerce, but then like things didn't happen. Um, but anyways, ended up staying. I was there for about four and a half years, and just kind of you know pulled myself up from my bootstraps and said, "All right, I just got to figure this shit out," and I did. Um, and then from there, I've, I've gone on, I've led marketing um, at early stage startups. So that's all up marketing, not not just content marketing. And then now I am over at uh, Clavio as their director of content strategy. So again, running uh, content marketing for a, a larger SaaS organization. Quick tangent. I want to ask you, how often do people mispronounce the name of your company? Clavio? A lot. Well, so... A lot. And I guess, I guess for me, you have to keep in mind, you know, I have been 
in the e-commerce world since 2011, right? So so when I started at Naturally Curly, that was like my first foray into e-commerce. When I worked at Mashable, my beat was the intersection of fashion and tech, which today is just e-commerce. Um, and then, of course, I, I was over at, at the e-commerce. So I've, I've been reporting on it for a really long time and, and, and in the industry for a really long time. So for me, I always knew Clavio. Like, like I've, I've known about Clavio since Clavio started. And as a result, I guess I've just known how to pronounce it from then, too. I, I don't know. But people get it wrong all the time. Like, even people who use Clavio often get it wrong all the time. Like, it's it, it's across it's across the board. Um, if I will say, if you are ever wondering, like, how the heck do I pronounce this? Clavio, if you land on one of their 404 pages... It will show you, it'll tell you how to pronounce it. It has like one of those like fun 404 pages. So just like go to clavio.com, put a slash in and some random like letters and let it bring you to a 404 page and it will tell you how to pronounce it. Nice little hack right there. Let's talk about yeah. content. Content is a hot button sure. topic every year because there's always a Google algorithm update, some change in the amount of social channels. First, there's Clubhouse. Sure. Should we be using Clubhouse? Now there's TikTok. Should we be using TikTok? Sure. When it comes to when it comes to producing content at scale, how can brands do that practically? Ooh. Um, well, so I deal primarily with written mm -hmm. content. Um, so I, I I say to to answer that question, I want to take like the concept of video content and even social media out yeah. of it in, in entirely. Um, because that changes the, the conversation significantly. So it, it very much depends on your role and what channels and things you're responsible for. Um, but scaling content efficiently requires really great project management as well as a, a really strong production process. So I like to advise businesses that are on the smaller side to produce maybe only one piece of content a week maybe even sometimes a month, depending on how big, like, like on, on how small you are. Because businesses at that size usually, one, don't have a ton of employees. And two, as a result, you have to you have to wear all the hats, right? You have a lot of different things to do. Producing content, really good, high-quality content can take a long time. On top of that, though, ideally you should be producing content that can is typically long-form in nature. Um, for a blog in particular, if you're a B2B company that is generally long form in nature, has interviewed a couple customers or partners or folks from around the internet so that you have some kind of outside perspective in there. You want to be adding to the conversation. So like adding a new point of view to an already existing conversation, which is something AI certainly can't can't do for folks right now. And then of course one and you know, want to optimize it for SEO, all of that jazz. But then once you have that piece of content finished, you then want to repurpose it from there, right? Every single piece of content that you publish should be able to turn into potentially dedicated emails out to your audience or maybe in a newsletter, um, should and can be used across social media channels, can be turned into uh, white papers or short pagers or one pagers, depending on what your sales team needs or maybe you know, what your lead gen efforts look like. Um, I am very much in the camp of if you can focus on creating the best content for a given topic at the top of the funnel, so that's that blog article asset, then repurposing it for all the use cases down funnel, one, you should definitely do it. And two, give it gives you a starting place, right? You're not having to start from scratch. And so that's the efficiency part of it, which is like that long form, really high quality content top of funnel. Like that's the stuff over time with consistency that's going to gain traction in organic search, is going to grow your brand's visibility as a thought leader, all of that jazz. But especially if you're a smaller organization, you can do this at a bigger scale if you're a larger organization with more people. But especially if if you're a smaller organization, that that SEO traction and that thought leadership traction is going to take a while, right? Like, like you have to build your brand authority, you have to build your domain ranking, all of that jazz. And so it's really helpful then to repurpose that content into a variety of other assets for different channels 
um, so that so that your company can start seeing some some revenue and value from content sooner rather than later. Uh, because if you don't do that, then your job's probably on the line. I'm putting you on the spot here, but sure. I've been uh, trying to convince some of the listeners to create a swipe file if they don't have one already. What are some best-in-class examples, some brands that you're seeing either from last right. year or even the, these past two months um, that are producing content at scale and it's noticeable, it's effective, you're impressed, et cetera? Um, noticeable, effective, and impressed. I, I, I probably have different brands that like fall into each of those categories. Um, so I don't, I, I don't think I have any that like hit all of them. I, I'm happy to talk through the ones that like I do like a lot that I think are doing really interesting work. So Candor, they have this like salary negotiation guide and a variety of other guides that are just absolutely phenomenal like the the work like the quality of quality of the work that they have put into that content is next to none like i mean i i can't find anything else on the internet that is even kind of like it to the point where like i think they have like three or four of these like longer form guides all at that quality level and then it doesn't look like they've produced a lot of other content outside of that which really goes to show that like it's especially if you're just getting started like quantity doesn't necessarily be ha have to be the game that you play, right? Like you can play a quality game in the way that Candor's doing it and still really win. Wealthfront, I think, is doing a really fantastic job with their content. Their UX and formatting of their content's also really good. Their blog homepage interlinks really well between their guides and their blogs. Uh, Robinhood, I think, is doing a fantastic job with content. Like, I mean, I'm I'm a Robinhood user, but like beyond that, like I think Robinhood's like content email might be one of the only content emails I regularly open. And I don't even know why. Like I'm like, what is it about it? And they they just approach difficult to or what feels like difficult to understand topics in a way that is that feels approachable, feels understandable. Um and their blog, their blog newsletter for the most part is an RSS feed. And like that doesn't work for anybody anymore but them, right? So like that that really speaks a ton to the work they're doing there. Um, I do think Intercom's content does does a really great job. Um, Intercom's content has been really effective for that organization for a long time. They're an organization that focused um, very early on on content quality. Um, they pub they start they were publishing books like back I think in 2012. BigCommerce started publishing books when I was there in like 2016, and we hopped on the phone with content people at Intercom to find out how they were doing it. Like they're the only other people in the industry even like thinking about it. They did have to add SEO and optimization in afterwards, which which they've done pretty well. Um, sent. So I, so I know that's taken off for them, but theirs is a really good one to look at. I don't love the UX of their site anymore, but whatever, it seems like they do and it goes with their brand. Um, Forerunner Ventures, another place that has really great content, seems to be repurposing quite a bit. They're not really in the tech space in particular, but they they report on the tech space. Um, so yeah, those, those are some of the top ones that come to mind. I do think like Dropbox's Content is like really pretty. I don't know how it's working for them. I think MailChimp looks really interesting. Same thing. I don't know how it's working for them. I also kind of put MailChimp in the same bucket as I would a HubSpot and, and even a Shopify to an extent, which is like they are just so big and they're producing so much content across so many different verticals and so many different mediums that like actually not worthwhile for any content marketer to really look at them as an example because very few businesses are going to give content teams the resources and freedom to to do that like I don't know based on what I see looking at those sites I'm like I don't know how much content has to map back to revenue for you guys and if that's the case then like you kind of just have like a creative free-for-all which is great for content marketers if you want to go like work in that environment but just know very few companies are like that. That's a great call out. Sometimes a brand isn't, even though they might seem like they're performing very well and they are, they may not be applicable to anything that you're actually doing on a daily basis. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, that that part of it is is really interesting. I, I, I tell my team all the time that like my definition of strategy is like, you know, you want to take a goal that that you've been given or that you've come up with and you want to create, you know, the best possible tactics, supposedly, to get you to that goal, the best possible ones in the most in the most perfect state, the coolest, best things you could put out on the internet, for sure. Like that's that's that first part of that strategy. But then you have to time bound it, and you have to say, and we want to get that out by this time. And suddenly that means you can't write as many pieces of content as you wanted. You might not be able to get it out in the exact design that you wanted, following like doing doing it in the exact way that you wanted. And so while organizations like MailChimp and, and HubSpot and, and other really large organizations that have a ton of content, again, across a lot of these mediums and channels, they're fun to look at. They're examples people in content marketing throw around all the time, but like they're just not realistic for most people. Like the moment you add in the time boundness, like very few organizations are going to be able to hit that especially if the goal is different than what those organizations are gold on, which at this point, those organizations started doing content marketing so long ago and are probably driving so much organic traffic that like, it doesn't actually matter what they do to a certain extent, right? And like, that's not true for most content marketers at most organizations. This is a perfect segue to start talking about misconceptions. What are some general uh, misconceptions you hear about when it comes to content marketing overall? Oh, misconceptions about content marketing overall. Um, okay, so this first one kind of has like two sides to it, which is one, a lot of content marketers. Um, so I, I grew up in, in marketing in general once I got out of journalism in a growth marketing function. Um, so I, I lived I lived in the growth marketing world um, from a content and SEO perspective, which meant that I had numbers I had to hit every single month or, or my job was on the line. Um, that way of working very much informs my, my content strategies. And I know that a lot of content people don't come from that background. A lot of content people come from a more creative background. Um, and I love that for them, but that is not that, that's not that's not the world I, I come from. So I, I mean, even in the way I just described strategy, right? Like, you want to do the absolute best thing you can in the time you're given to hit the goal, right? So for me, I have always opted for trying to do everything I can to map content back to conversions and or revenue. Um, as often as possible. And I hear a lot of content marketers say that that is impossible or it's really, really hard and it's, it certainly can be really hard. There's a lot of content marketers who hate lead gen assets or gated assets, right? They, they just refuse to participate in that. None of that stuff makes sense to me as, as a marketer. Like in, in content marketing, your job, your primary function as a content marketer is to drive traffic and to drive lead gen. And then lead gen should be able to be tracked all the way back to either direct revenue or content-assisted revenue as, as much as possible. So that, I think, is a big misconception of content marketing. I also think that it um, content market marketing as a whole not being more growth uh, marketing or maybe performance marketing um, from like a, a mindset um, has kind of stopped it from becoming as big of a career as maybe things like, you know, paid media is has become this huge career for people or product marketing is like a whole discipline, right? Content marketers by and large still are vastly underpaid in comparison to a lot of the other marketing disciplines out there. And I have a really strong hunch that a lot of that is because content marketers aren't as an industry, as a discipline, aren't tying their, their work back uh, as well as they probably could be or maybe should be to the overall revenue and impact that, that this discipline can have. Hey there, I wanna to talk to you about a great platform that you can use to support your business, support your team, and get through this tough market, especially if you're trying to continue growing your marketing. But you need more support, and that's Marketer Hire. What's Marketer Hire? 
Marketer Hire is a platform similar to Upwork and Fiverr where you can hire vetted freelancers that can help you with your marketing. The difference between Upwork and Fiverr is that every single freelancer that's on the platform is vetted, evaluated for their skills, and they only get the top 1% of practitioners in the space. You can get SEO marketers, email marketers, even fractional CMOs on this platform. And what's even better is thanks to a partnership that I have with them, you can get your first $500 off in a credit when you hire your first freelancer on the platform. All you need to do is go to kennysoto.com forward slash hire. That's kennysoto.com forward slash H-I-R-E to get your first $500 off on your first freelance hire. And again, this is a great platform that you can use at any time whenever you're trying to scale your business at any stage of your business. So if you have a business that you're trying to grow, or if you just want to help support your team and impress your boss, visit kennysoto.com forward slash hire to get your first freelancer to support your team today. I attribute my recent promotion to essentially not just focusing on brand marketing, top of funnel content, but learning that skill of performance marketing. I find, and yep. maybe you might agree here, that performance marketers are able to understand how their impact or how their work impacts the business overall and how to map their strategy to company strategy and revenue growth. It's only been like, I want to say a year and a half that I realized that my job is not the metrics on the platform. My job is to either bring in sales or sales opportunity, right. excuse me, or bring in direct revenue. It's just those two things at the end of the day. Right, right, right. right. Well, and I mean, like, we all like that that's capitalism right like like we all work for companies that need to make money and like you were hired to make the company money no matter what they sold you on that is that is actually what you were hired for um uh, and the sooner you can figure out how to prove that you are doing that the better now i will say paid media has a huge advantage over content marketing right it's really effing easy to track paid media back to revenue, like ridiculously easy. And it over attributes, right? Like Facebook for the last decade, I guess, over, except for like the last year and a half, two years, was giving paid marketers credit for something that happened 60, 90 days ago. Like that is so upsetting. No wonder, you know, the whole industry got like so obsessed with performance marketing. Content marketing, you can't do that. We don't use UTMs. And honestly, it's bad for SEO to use UTMs in between all of your your main, like your your site's properties, right? Um, it's a lot harder to track content's efforts back to revenue. Um, and direct content revenue is typically a lot lower than what content assisted revenue is. And so what it, the difference for me there is, you know, there's revenue that like content can drive on its own, which is like someone downloads a piece of content and then they become a paid customer. Wow, cool, amazing. It's not the way most people shop. It's not the way most revenue happens. Instead, content marketing um, and most organizations should be serving both a strategic and a service uh, function. The strategic function is like you need to drive traffic, you need to drive lead gen, you want to track that back to revenue 100%. But the service function is your paid media organization, your lifecycle organization, your brand organization, your sales team all need content. And they're coming to you for that content. And so you have to produce content for them, right? And then they use it in their channels and then they get credit for whatever success they see. I, like, cool, 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 I get it. And like a marketing funnel world, content sits closer to the top of the funnel. But what I don't like about that model is, is one, because content marketers can't talk in the same way that paid mar paid paid media marketers can about how they're contributing to revenue, they get less resources, they often get paid less, they they can't do as cool of programs, and I I just think that's BS. So I have often instead leaned on a content assist metric, which is for everyone who lands on content. And then, and within a certain time frame, either becomes an, an, an MQL or a customer, I am counting that as a content assist because that number is so much bigger. And what you start to see when you can measure that for an organization is that content is contributed like, like 11 
11 to, I don't know, like 60% of the people who end up closing or the revenue that's generated in a given month, those people touch content prior prior to closing, right? And so what, what you're beginning to see then in those models is just like the service impact of content. Uh, and I have found that when you can present content to execu executives and leadership in that way, uh, as a content assist metric to show them how much you're helping the organization make money and how you could help the organization make a lot more money with more investment, that's when you start getting those additional resources. That's when you start getting the raises, all of that jazz. So again, paid marketers, I don't think there's like a fair comparison between content marketing and and what those folks are doing just because like it is a lot easier for them to track back to revenue. And, and they have to, right? For them, every dollar they put into something, they need to get a dollar or more out, right? Content marketing should should be that way too. But like content marketing, while your biggest goal should be driving traffic and lead gen, you still have to think about brand marketing, right? Like consistency really matters, building, you know, you're gonna get more successful over time, the better you are at producing high quality content. Um, you want to track stuff back to revenue, but because content sits at the top of the funnel, the revenue that you drive might not come until 60 or 120 days after somebody downloads a piece of content, right? Or maybe someone needs to download a variety of pieces of content before they actually close. It's just not as one-to-one -one as paid media or even lifecycle marketing can be because of where content sits in the funnel and because of how often content is used throughout the funnel to try to move leads into the next part of the funnel. So again, I, I like to rely on that content assist metric a little bit more because it gives you a better understanding of just how much work every individual piece of content is doing to, to try to help close. I've been conceptualizing a course that I want to build out of this podcast and the more I have conversations like this, the more I'm honing in on the course topic being attribution and attribution yeah. models, because it's the one thing that affects every single marketer, regardless of their function. And this is, right. is giving me that signal that it's still an issue where if you're, first of all, you have to agree, are you using first touch, last touch, linear, right? That's a whole argument in and of itself. Your team needs to get buy-in on that. You need to justify the decisions of your CFO because they might have their opinion, especially if they understand marketing, they'll give you their opinion. And then outside sure. of that, then you have to think about, okay, so if we're using linear, which I think is the best case scenario, then sure. how are you making those decisions from either a leadership the position or trying to advocate the right decision for your pod, your function to get the resources it needs? to grow revenue either directly or indirectly, which is in most cases. And sure. you're highlighting a big I mean, issue. Yeah, I mean, look, attribution, attribution is hard and it sucks and it's never accurate ever, right? Like it, like that's, that's- And you have um, the dark funnel, which is a whole separate monster, word of mouth. Like how do you right, track that? Right, yeah, yeah. So like it's, um, a a attribution is political at best. <laughs> um, like is is the best way to put it. So like, yes, I think it's important that marketers understand the different attribution models. Um, I am somebody who like is leaning more and more on like mixed media modeling as um, a better, it is, it is attribution, but it's not, it's not one of the traditional ones. It's like, you know, it's, it's where like Facebook and, and others are beginning to go. Um, and I think it's a good model. It's an important model, a necessary model because Cookies, which um, is one of the ways that you even attribute, uh, are dropping away, um, and that's going to continue happen happening. And and marketers are going to continue scrambling to to prove to prove their value. But yeah, I mean, honestly, look, I I think I think what's really happened is is less about um, attribution over the last decade or, or twenty years or so, and more about um, this interesting shift that we saw happen in marketing and in the industry where marketing, you know, the saying used to be, you know, 20% of, of, of what you put out drives 80% of your revenue. The trouble is you don't know which. 
you know, like, like you don't know which 20%. So you have to do all of it. Right. And they would try to attribute historically from a marketing standpoint, but you know, you had to do like, like in-person sessions with customers, really, how did you find this? And like, what were the steps? And it took months to figure that stuff out. And all of that changed when Facebook came on uh, on the market, right? And and Facebook had this fantastic attribution, or not attribution, they had this fantastic targeting platform from, from an advertising platform. And back in 2010, it was super cheap to use. Like, I mean, it's crazy. People were becoming like millionaires overnight selling like golf clubs and shit. Um, B2B got, got into that world as well, started seeing a lot of return. And what you began to see, and you have to keep in mind, a lot of things were happening at this time. You know, Facebook's targeting came out, um, providing really clear attribution back to extended attribution, but ni neither here nor there. It was also the, the Great Recession, right? So um, a lot of people have either lost jobs or, you know, aren't making as much money as they were, have lost their homes. I mean, a lot, like the economy was just not in a good place. And so... I think what we ultimately saw were was a lot of um, fear from a marketing pers perspective, which and which was you know turned into a reliance on only putting money into the channels that drive revenue, and that is not how marketing works. That has never been how marketing works. Um, Taylor Holiday over at Common Thread Collective um, tweeted something out a, a couple years ago, I think now, where he he made the point that that if you are only putting money into like paid advertising, or if you are only putting money into like retention marketing, like whatever, if you like choose choose the one marketing thing that you want to put money into, essentially like marketing is like a sponge, and you need water in that sponge to be able to continue to squeeze that sponge to get water out of it, right? Like we all understand that. But so few businesses actually invest in driving a pipeline for their organization. And your brand builds a pipeline. Your content consistency builds a pipeline. Your social media channels build pipelines. Even if none of those things are driving revenue back or attribution back, even if you can't track it, they are still adding water to your sponge. And if you don't invest in those tactics and you only invest in paid media, for instance, you're going to end up with a dry sponge. Paid media is going to be really expensive. You're not going to be able to convert people. Um, or, or if you are, it's just not going to be sustainable. So anyways, I, I think we have gotten to a weird place with attribution where there's a whole generation of marketers, we included, that over-rely on attribution as a way to keep our jobs because that's like what leadership has been expecting for the last decade. And I think as cookies disappear, that over-reliance on attribution will disappear too. But I think it's going to take another decade for us for us to get there. And in the meantime, we're all going to be sitting here trying to figure out how to map content back to revenue, even though that's not content's main purpose. I, I want to be respectful of your time. So four more questions. Okay. Um, Okay. Next one, research skills, how to leverage research in content. Um, how to leverage research in content. I mean, you, you can't write content without research. Um, I don't I don't know that that would probably be a whole other podcast on on how to on how to research. I don't think we can answer that at a short period of okay. time. Um, I mean, it is like the every single piece of content. Um, at least at least the teams that write content for me, I need um, content to connect dots that I didn't know were connected before, right? Otherwise, why am I reading this piece of content? Like I I could go I, I could go look all this stuff up already on my own. Um, but I need I need every piece of content to take two seemingly disparate ideas or two seemingly disparate events and make it clear that those things are related. Uh, and you can't do that without research. You can't do that without reading a ton of content about your industry. You can't do that um, without interviewing folks often, like to re to draw connections and dots that other people are not making. You have you have to research. You have to put you have to put the work in. Next question. And I'm making an assumption here. So if I'm incorrect, we'll go the other way. Why have you taken the generalist approach 
in your career yeah. versus specializing in one specific thing? Oh, yeah. Um, I have taken a generalist approach. One, I think it's my personality and just like the way my my brain works. I was asked the other day by another content marketer. Um, they said they said content marketers tend to be either really good at like the creative side of it or really good at like the like process side of it. Um, and they're like, which one are you good at? Like naturally, and which one did you have to grow? And I was like, honestly, I think I kind of suck at both. Like my skill is that I can see, I can see the forest for the trees, right? Like I can see the big picture of what it is that we're trying to do, why it matters, what we're trying to connect it to. And then, and then I can take detailed actions to go after those things, but I am not particularly creative. I am not particular. I I had to learn how to do project management. I had to learn how to tell better stories. Like, yes, I was in a journalism world, but like, who you get ripped apart there and told how to write better stories all the time. Um, I had to learn all of that stuff. But I I can see the overarching arc of stories and of a process and of a department and what it is that we're trying to do to make to make a difference. And so for me generalism just works better, right? I, um, I, you know, I've, I've led marketing teams all up, you know, all, all of the channels um, and disciplines under them. I also, while I see the value in specialists, um, I get worried. A lot of, a lot of companies overhire specialists and underhire generalists and that creates um, a lack of efficiency, basically. Um, specialists are really great at the individual thing they do. What they're often not very great at is talking to anyone else outside of their specialty. And that's a huge issue. Marketing needs to be integrated, especially when you're in a bear market like this, potential recession like this. Every single piece of content that you put out, every single campaign you put out, every ad you put out, it all needs to be tied together so that the business uh, doesn't seem like it's working, you know, like with an octopus that can't control any of its legs, right? Like like you're trying to all work together. Um, generalists are typically the ones who make that work. Um, they're great at project management. They're great at seeing that bigger picture. Specialists are super important and have their place for sure. But I do, I get, I get really nervous when I see companies hire too many of them and and no generalists to help manage or not enough generalists to balance it out. Typically that's a big indication that that organization is wasting marketing spend. You write a lot for your personal brand. What advice do you have for the listener who's trying to sift out the right advice to follow? Well, so what I have been telling my team a lot recently is um, no content marketer does content marketing in the same way. And that's a good thing. Um, it is always best. This that, this is something I, I kind of took from the journalism world, right? Where like, it's always best in the journalism world if you follow your own curiosity, right? Follow your own curiosity. Follow the things that are interesting to you. Write stories about that stuff because that comes through in, in your stories. It comes through in your interviews. Like everything's going to be better because you care, because you're interested, because you have this natural curiosity. Same thing is true in content marketing. Rely as much as you possibly can on what makes you curious, what your strengths are, where like the stories that you want to tell, that bigger picture that you want to draw. Yes, in content marketing, there are foundations that are probably in general good for everyone to follow. But like beyond that, like it, it's kind of it's kind of every person for themselves. You can do whatever you want. You can figure it out however you want. It's very helpful to have people offer advice and kind of help steer you in your thinking. Um, but the ultimate goal is that you are super stoked and excited about every single piece of content that you produce. And if you can't do that following the process that you're following now or that you've gotten from some other expert, then it's probably the wrong process for you. So like, yes, take other people's advice, but other people's advice, honestly, 
should always be taken with a grain of salt. They don't know your exact situation. They don't know your exact mind. They don't know your exact skills. They don't know exactly what your company's trying to do. Um, and, and, and the tools and the tools and everything change all the time. Like what worked, you know, 10 years ago, won't work today. What worked five years ago, what worked two years ago. So like, yeah, advice is helpful, but follow your own gut. Get excited about the advice you like. Follow the experts that that you like. But again, still take take their insights with with a grain of salt and figure out your own way. And last question for you is hypothetical because time machines okay. don't exist. But if one day okay. and you can go back into the past about 10 years knowing everything you know right now, how would you specifically accelerate the speed of your career? Oh, goodness. Um, how would I accelerate the speed of my career? I mean, look, I made... I made a lot of mistakes as a professional at big commerce because I was I was coming from a journalism background. I was not someone who cared about capitalism or the way businesses ran. I thought politics and business was absurd and abhorrent, um, and I did not want to participate at all. And as a result, I never got promoted despite how much traffic I was driving for that organization and how much revenue I could prove I was driving. Um, I had other people steal my ideas and present them as their own and get promotions that I should have gotten, the repercussions of which um, some of those people are a lot wealthier than I am today because BigCommerce was a company that had shares and IPO'd. Um, and a lot of that was because I refused to play the game. Internal marketing and politics within an organization are crucial. And it exists everywhere. Big company, small company, it doesn't matter. How people perceive you, um, how you communicate, the importance of psychology and philosophy and working with others, I would redo all of that at Big Commerce. I don't think it would change at all the success that I saw from my output, right? Like, I mean, we saw huge success at Big Commerce. It would have sped up my career, and I could say I'd be sitting on hundreds of thousands of more dollars today had had I done it. It's um, you took a deep breath. It seems like you know it too. It sucks. <laughs> I learned this. Luckily enough, I learned this in college before I even got my first job. I was in student government, yeah. and I learned right away that it's just a reflection of working in groups of people. Like, obviously, there are organizations that take a, a conscious effort to have a good company culture where politics are at the very least not toxic, but you can't get rid of them. You can't get rid of them. They're there. Yeah. You, ha you have to play it. You do. And I just, I refused for four years um, and I, I burned out, which was a result of me refusing. Again, I, I lost out on a lot of my of career progress, like so many different things. And now I, I, I do internal marketing. I, I can play the politics game just fine, but it's not even playing politics. It's just like talking to people, I guess. I, I, I don't know. It's not just advocating for yourself. It is. It is. It's advocating for yourself, advocating for your team, and it's internal marketing, right? Um, and I did not do enough of that or really hardly any of it at BigCommerce, and it held me back massively. Um, and so, yeah, so if I could go back, I would try to tell young Tracy to stop being so stuck up and just like participate in what is happening around you. Um, but I was very much of the mindset. I, I, I come from Southeast Texas. Um, and, you know, my my grandfather um, was a big figure in my life. And he was very much, he was a, um, you know, a, a child of the Great Depression. And he was very much of the mindset that, like, you, you work hard and you be nice to people and you will find success. And that is sort of true. If you work hard and nice to people, it'll get you in the right position for success. But that's not all there is to it. Your network really matters. Playing internal internal marketing and adv and advocating for yourself really matter. Um, and I just thought that if I went in every day and kept my head down and did 
cool work that that would be enough. Um, and it that was great. That's it's certainly gotten me to where I am today. But I am moving far faster, far better in my career now because I have learned the importance of my network and um, and, and and advocating and internal marketing. It's you need to spend probably just as much time on internal marketing as you do on actually producing the work that you're doing. If I ever get the opportunity to do a part two of you, I already know two things that we can dive into. Research and internal marketing and just have that as its own thing. If anyone wanted to say hello to you online, where can they find you? Um, I am on Twitter, so I'm at Trace Wall. That's probably the best place to find me. And then I will say I'm about to be out on maternity leave here for a good little while. So don't anybody get your feelings hurt if I don't respond for a while. I, that's I I'm I'm off for almost six months. So I'm not going to be back until August. So I might be online here and there, but probably not too much. Yeah. So by the time this episode airs, I'll put a disclosure in the show notes that they can follow you, but the DMs might be closed for a while. Yeah, 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 exactly. Feel feel free to DM me. You just might not hear back from me for a while. All right. (laughs) That's all. Thank you, Tracy, for your time today. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening to another episode of the People Digital Marketing Podcast. This is episode 120. If you've listened to at least one other episode, I'm asking just one favor. Just one. Please rate us. Four stars, five stars. I'd ideally like a five-star review, but if it's just four stars, that's okay, too. There's always room for improvement. And yeah. That's the only request I have at the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you again, Tracy, for being on. Bye. If you liked this episode, and this one is longer than usual, but thanks again for listening. And next week, I will have my coworker, my partner in crime, JC, John Carlos Bologna, on the podcast for episode 121, where we talk about performance and growth marketing. JC is the head of growth at Loop, the car insurance startup that we both work at, based in Austin, Texas. And in our next episode, we will be talking about the beginning of his career when he started an agency, all the way up to how he got his job at Loop, working with John Henry and Carrie Ann Nadeau. Then we'll be talking about growth marketing and how he defines it and why it's not just media buying and so much more. So if you enjoyed this episode of Tracy Wallace, don't forget to subscribe, share this podcast with your coworkers, and tune in next week for my episode with JC Bologna.